Will you turn with me now to Acts chapter 20? Acts chapter 20, and our text begins at verse 13. I'm going to ask you to stand out of respect for the holy, infallible, inspired, and errant word of the living God. The Apostle says here, uh, But we going ahead to the ship set sail for Essos, intending from there to take Paul on board, for so he had arranged it, intending himself to go by land. And when he met at Essos, we took him on board, and we came to Mytilene, sailing from there. We arrived the following day opposite Chios. The next day we crossed over to Samos, and the day following we came to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hurrying to be in Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. From Miletus he sent to Ephesus, and he called to him the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You yourselves know, from the first day that I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time. Serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house. Solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, behold, bound by the Spirit, I'm on the way to Jerusalem. Not knowing what will happen to me there except... This Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. But I don't consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I might finish my course in the ministry which I have received from the Lord Jesus, to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will no longer see my face. Therefore I testify to you this day, I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. You may be seated. I'm sure most of us here this morning have heard the trite old expression that those who don't learn the mistakes of history are bound to repeat them. It's uh, pretty simple, and it's actually halfway true or accurate. And one reason why is because history of the stu- is the study of human behavior, and history, therefore, has an inescapable moral dimension to it because human activity, human decision-making, is ethical and moral at its very root. So to review history, at least from one perspective, is to review things which speak about moral principles, things to be avoided and other things that are to be commended and to be put into practice. That's what the Apostle Paul would have us understand too. He illustrates the principle, if you will, before us as he sets himself down before these Ephesian elders on the Isle of Miletus and he begins to recount things to them about his ministry. It would be wrong for us this morning to think this is a mere rehearsal of details for the sake of putting it on record. Paul isn't here to just uh, set the facts straight, as it were. He's obviously not here to uh, tell them things they don't know because he begins his whole address to the elders by saying, you yourselves know. So as we come to our text here this morning, it's not merely to grasp hold of some information about the historical record of Paul's ministry there. We come to hear it as those elders were to hear it. We come for the reason why the Apostle Paul recounts it, so that he can teach. You see, one of the things that he wants to do is set before them the model of his ministry as not a mere reminder, but as a teaching tool so that they may absorb it and digest it and to learn its lessons. It's quite evident to us that's his purpose because after he recounts the model of his ministry from verse 17 through 27, he pivots away from historical rehearsal to admonition as he says there, be on your guard. You see, he begins to draw out principles. 
he begins to draw out admonitions, things that they should discern and understand about their obligations. But that tells us then, as we look at the record here from verse 17 through 27 and Paul's rehearsal of the facts, that he's setting before us a record, a historical narrative of his ministry, at least in terms of its highlights, for the purpose of teaching the church. Now I remind you this morning that this is typical. Uh, There's a passage, uh, many passages in fact, in Paul's writings which would uh, teach us that the model of the apostle was designed to be instructional. For instance, 2 Thessalonians 3.7 says, You yourselves know how you ought to follow our example because we did not act in an undisciplined way among you. He reminds the people of Thessalonica about his model and manner of ministry, and he says that stands as instruction. That is moral instruction. The preacher makes a very similar point in Hebrews 13, verse 7. He says, Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. Again here, he's thinking about the pastors and elders of the church. And he says very something very specific. He lays a command before the people of God. Those people who led you, those people who preached the word to you, you need to consider how they behaved. Because in that behavior, there is something to learn about the Christian life. So we know the Word of God teaches this in principle, and so I'm going to argue here from our text this morning, this is precisely why... Luke records this, and Paul goes into such depth and detail to recount the ministry while he was among them, both in terms of its generalities and some of its specifics, so that we would gain instruction. So that we would gain instruction, and that we would have a model to imitate for ourselves. And there's two points of the rehearsal of the details of Paul's ministry here that we need to take home and consider. First of all, we have a, a model of Christian behavior, and then we have a model of, all, of Paul's teaching, uh, which promotes spiritual health. So we have a model of teaching, and that's grounded in Paul's behavior. So let's think a minute about that behavior. And by the way, as we work our way there, we can just remember quickly the context. Uh, There's a a whole series of terms here in verses 13 through 16 that uh, are in some ways difficult to uh, just even say out loud and to pronounce. And it feels like an awful lot of detail. And I don't think I need to spend any time on it other than the fact to notice here that at the end of that testimony of the travel log, you'll notice two things. Paul sailed past Ephesus and is now in Miletus, and he has an aim to get to Pentecost, uh, to Jerusalem by Pentecost. And so he's in a hurry, but nonetheless, he uh, has determined that he needs to speak to these pastors and elders of the church of Ephesus. And so you see here in verse 17 from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and he called to him the elders of the church. Now we have an interesting detail here that the Apostle Paul says in the middle of our text here, he thinks at this moment he'll never see them again. It's been well over a year since he saw them last. He spent at least three years of ministry among them. And then we learn back at the beginning of chapter 20 that he decided to to pull up stakes and to move on and go plant a church in Troas and then to go back and to uh, visit all the churches of Macedonia and Greece that he had already planted. He wanted to go establish and confirm them in faith. But for some reason, and it's not quite clear to us, as Paul is jumping on one ship after another from Assos to to Miletus to Chios and all those other terms in our text, at some point he uh, he became determined to call these elders from Ephesus in order to speak to them. And he had things to say to them that were weighty, as we're going to see as we examine the text next time, about savage wolves rising up from within their midst and their duty to stand with boldness and vigor to defend the truth and defend the people of God. He's got very critical things to say to them. But before he gets there, he presents the model of his ministry for them to learn from. I'd have you notice here there are two basic parts of that model. 
There's that which is general, and there's that which is specific. Look at your text this morning so that you can see it for yourself. I would have you note that at the very end of verse 18, Paul says, How I was with you the whole time. Paul here is reminding that his ministry was incarnational. It was among them and it was with them. But the arrangement of the text tells us that he wants to specifically spotlight two things about how he was with them. So the very first word in verse 19 is serving, a participle modifying, I was with you. And so he tells us on one hand, the general nature of his time with them was service. He was serving the Lord with humility, with tears, and with trials. So that's what's general about his model. We'll come back to unfold that in a moment. And then as you begin verse 20, there is another qualifier of how he was with them. He said, how I did not shrink back from declaring anything among you that was profitable. So two elements that he wants to appeal to in terms of his ministry model. Number one, he served them. And number two, he preached the word among them. Let's unfold that now. We come back to this model here. He served them. And I would have us just note again the the very uh, initial words here in verse 18. You yourselves know. He is appealing to a record of facts that they are familiar with. It was public. It's emphatic. It was also something that was persistent. I would note here the very language of verse 18. From the first day that I set foot in Asia, the whole time. In other words, he takes them back down memory lane as far as he can go from that day when this, uh, this short little rabbi came into town with a tool belt under one arm and a Bible under the other. He said, from that very day. He knew some of them, obviously, from that day or he wouldn't have appealed to it. He says, from that day, from the foundation of my ministry, there was a consistency to it. And he goes on to double down on that uh, notion as he says, the whole time. So it was a persistent example. It wasn't intermittent. It wasn't sporadic. The heart of what he wants to speak about, though, is bound up in the very first word of 19. Serving. Serving. That word there is a powerful word because it means to be a slave. It means to serve as a slave. Turns out this happens to be one of the Apostle Paul's favorite ways of describing himself. When Paul writes the magnum opus, that letter which seems out of the New Testament to stand above all others in terms of a full setting forth and exposition of the theology of Christianity, he introduces himself to the Romans by saying, Paul, an apostle, bond servant of Jesus Christ. The same language that you have here. A duleo. And notice here that he describes the nature of his service. He was serving the Lord. In other words, the behavior of the apostle there is regarded, all of it, as service to the Lord. Everything that he did there is to be regarded as service to the Lord. When he says it's service to the Lord, we're not to think of some sort of cloistered away in a monastery somewhere, service to the Lord by uttering prayers and reading Bible verses. Paul is thinking here of all of the behavior, all of his conduct, all of his ministry, all the ways in which he helped people. All of it is regarded as service to the Lord. It was unto Christ. And there are three elements of it. Notice that it's unpacked very carefully here, and in a sense we could say comprehensively, as he says, serving the Lord with. Now we have three prepositional objects here. Humility, tears, and trials. What was Paul's service like? Well, first of all, he says it was service with humility. It was service with humility. In other words, it was unselfish service. It was service with the deepest concern and compassion for others. In a sense, we could say this morning that his service was countercultural service. Because a man of his renown, of his reputation, of his immense intellect and learning would not normally describe himself as humble in antiquity. In fact, we remind ourselves this morning that the Greeks considered the notion of humility as gross. They viewed it as something despicable. 
they viewed humility as something that isn't self-respecting. In fact, the only people who were called humble in the ancient world were cowering slaves. It reminds us this morning when the Apostle Paul regards himself and describes himself as engaging in humble service, he didn't regard himself as a megalomaniac who lighted up every room where he went. He had a very modest assessment of himself. All things had changed since he became a believer. He can describe himself before he comes to Jesus Christ as one who was advancing beyond all of his contemporaries. He says, if you want to look at me from the perspective of the flesh and having reasons to be confident and self-assertive and to push my chest out, if you want to view me as a Pharisee and as a Jew of Jew, go ahead. I'm at the top of the list. But as a Christian, as a believer, as a servant of the Lord, as an apostle... My service wasn't with self-flattery and self-assertion. It was with humility. Modest self-assessment here. The other thing that he says here is that his service was with tears. And that seems to be doubled down and accented as you look down even to verse 31. He says, he reminds them, I did not cease to admonish you with tears. And we shouldn't take that to mean that Paul was a big crybaby. We shouldn't take the Apostle Paul's summary of his service there as if he was some sort of emotional diva. We gain insight into the tears of the Apostle which he shed from a passage over in Philippians 3. He says, Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many of whom I often told you and now tell you, even weeping, they are enemies of the cross of Christ. Here he speaks to the Philippians about his model of behavior and his conduct among them. And he says, I want you to imitate it. Because there are people that used to name the name of Jesus Christ among you. There were people who were saved under the ministry and the preaching of the gospel who named Christ and because they did not follow the model, because they were unteachable in heart and spirit, are now enemies of Christ. Can you imagine the tears the apostles shed? People who he discipled in faith and led to Christ and taught them about Christian behavior and conduct are now the very people who are opponents of the ministry of the gospel. And he says, I weep over them. The tears were not self-indulgent. They were not the tears of a diva. They were tears of a man who had a heart of flesh, who had it ripped apart again and again as he experienced the failures of the people of God. He mourned over the church. He mourned over those who claimed Christ and yet defamed Him by their life. He shed tears over ruined souls. The other thing that he says here characterized his service was trials. And specifically here, he's speaking of dangerous ones. This is plots formed by the Jews. And we don't have any record of that in Ephesus. We certainly do about the other places. It seemed like on his second missionary journey, everywhere he went, the Jews were were raising up plots against him to, to seize his life. It happened in Philippi, it happened in Thessalonica, it happened in Berea, it happened in Corinth. We can assume then, since Paul had spent at least three months preaching in the synagogue at Ephesus, and we can assume based upon the flourishing of the word in Ephesus, that there were plots raised against him. But yet the apostle said, through it all he persevered. Through trials many, he continued to serve the Lord and to serve the church. And so one of the things that the Apostle is saying by that particular description of his ministry is it wasn't easy. It was through great difficulty, through personal pain. It wasn't all a season of comfort and peace. He served through trials. So let's take up this model of the Apostle Paul in the spirit of learning. 
Remember, the Apostle Paul continues to set his example before the people of God as something to be imitated and learned from. He says in 1 Corinthians 4.16, Be imitators of me. 1 Corinthians 11.1, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Philippians 4.9, Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. 2 Thessalonians 3.7, You yourselves know how you ought to follow our example because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you. I just simply... uh, Put these texts before you to stick it in our thinking that when Paul appeals to his model, he's doing it to teach. In other words, he's impressing upon us duty. And as I look over this part that is general here in terms of Paul's model, we learn something about it for ourselves. And it seems to me the main element and thread that we want to pull out of this general Uh, model of the Apostle Paul is this great call to service. One of the things that the Apostle Paul wants to impress upon the church as he says goodbye to them, he thinks for the last time is there's something to be learned from his example. And his example to be learned from is this, that we're all called to be servants of Christ. You know, uh, the Apostle Paul puts it like this in 1 Thessalonians 1.9. He describes this massive shift in orientation in their life. How they turned from idols. Everything that they had known in their entire life had been about the worship of idols. Their entire life had been bound up with idolatry. What a massive, monumental shift it was to change from the worship of idols to a whole new life. But do you know the very first word that the Apostle Paul uses to describe this radical reorientation and change of life was? Serve. Serve. You turn from idols to serve the living and the true God. In other words, the entire reorientation of life can be summarized in a simple term, service. And what that tells us all this morning, people of God, that at the root and the foundation of the Christian life is this simple idea, service. To serve as a slave, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that service is a life of service to the people of God. Uh, Paul puts it like this, Galatians 5.13. You were called to freedom, brethren, only don't use that freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Through love, serve one another. 1 Peter 4.10, as each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the grace of of God. So one reason why the Apostle Paul calls attention to his model of service is to cultivate more of it among the people of God. And so then we learn this morning that the general duty that we're called to is a duty of service, but we also understand the manner of that service. It is to be humble. It is to be humble service. Paul sets forth the nature of that kind of service in terms of duty. In Philippians 2, verse 3, he says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind. There it is. The nature of our service. Humility of mind. And what does that duty of humble service look like? He says in the next verse, Not merely looking out for your own personal interests, but the interests of others. You can even back that up and look back to the end of verse 3 as Paul continues the idea of humble service. He says, regard one another as more important than yourselves. This is the essence of humility here. Regarding others as more important. Doing things not out of self-interest, but for a concern for others. This is the duty of humble service. And the reason for the nature of the service is grounded in the person whom we serve. Paul immediately grounds the exhortation in the model of Christ. He says, have this attitude of humility, which was also in Jesus Christ. So we learned something this morning about the nature of this service. Paul says it's a humble service, and this is precisely the service that we as the people of God are called to. Something else that we discern from Paul's model that applies to the general notion of service is persistence. 
persistence in service. Remember, he's describing a season of time which began from day one and extends through the whole time. That's persistence. But what I'm thinking of more specifically here is the idea that he persevered in humble service through trials. One of the great difficulties of sustaining Christian service is that it's not easy. One of the greatest difficulties in cultivating and committing ourselves to Christian service is that it's full of difficulties and trials and opposition and is awfully deeply frustrating and can sap all of our emotional and spiritual energy. And worse yet, one of the things that is uh, one of the greatest obstacles to Christian service is that when you serve others, it is often the case, and I'm not saying this is always the case, but it's all too often the case that when you pour out yourself in service of others, they don't express a shred of gratitude. Many will just walk away. Having received all that you have to give, many will just walk away. But that doesn't mean that we have less of it because we've been hurt or somehow burned in Christian service. No, the service that Paul sets before him here is is a model of serving with humility and with patience and through tribulation. And so this morning, as we think about the application of Paul's model to us, first of all, he's calling us to a duty. He's calling us to the duty of serving Christ by serving others. Serving Christ by serving others. It wasn't that long ago I sat at a Bible study with one of our elders and a handful of the members of this congregation. And part of the Bible study lesson was to think through ways in which we need to serve one another in the church. And here, without even presenting the question before anybody arrived, within the space of just a few minutes, we were able to draw up a list of things or ways of serving in this congregation. And it numbered over 20 This is not a large congregation by any stretch. But if you stop and think about it, if we all just sat here and put a pen to paper this morning, we could all, I think, come up with a lengthy list of ways in which we are to serve. 20 different ways, 20 distinct kinds. But will we do it? The question is not whether we can identify the way people need to be served, but will we do what we're called to do? Having heard here, the Apostle Paul sets forth the model of his example of service, and not just the fact that in general terms he spoke about serving the Lord, but the fact that he says with humility and with tears and through trials, it leaves us with a weighty sense of obligation. But I wonder whether people will step forward this morning and say, I'm here, send me. This is my calling. It's one thing to hear about Paul's example of service and say, I'm glad there are people like that in the church. Isn't it nice? That person has the spirit of service. And then assume that you're absolved of all responsibility of serving anybody because somebody else does it with a cheerful smile and pleasant about it. Well, things are getting done. Paul sets forth a duty here. He says, by his own example of serving, it's a call to you to serve. He calls upon imitation. There's something else that Paul doesn't draw out here expressly, but I think is also critical for us to understand about this service which Paul speaks of because it's the essence of the fuel of service. Grace. There, there is a statement the Apostle Paul makes which is truly profound and gripping as he explains his commitment to apostolic ministry in 1 Corinthians 15. And here in verse 10 of that chapter, he puts the spotlight upon the ground or basis of his service. He says, By the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace towards me did not prove vain. Notice here he is describing that mindset that governs and fuels and energizes and forms the foundation of his apostolic ministry. And he says, I am what I am by grace. Do you think that way this morning? Are you overwhelmed with consciousness of grace? 
Do you regard yourself this morning as someone who is the recipient of the outpouring of the Father's love? Do you think of yourself this morning and say, my identity is bound up in this Christ's grace to me? Because the Apostle Paul says the thing which was not in vain, in other words, when he received this grace, it didn't just sit there. It was put into action through this very uh, um, ministry full of vitality and energy. But he says the ground of it all was this great and profound consciousness of grace. So we could say this morning, uh, there's a little rule I think we could even apply here to see whether we've um, understood grace. You see, those who are conscious of having received grace are those who are very active in Christ's service. Grace compels to humble service. People of God, if there's a lack of service in your life for Christ and for others, you need to become conscious of Christ's grace to you. So here the Apostle lays down one of the pillars of his model. It was a life of service. And now we come to the second, where the Apostle sets forth the model of his teaching and preaching. And the key here that we want to draw out, it was designed to promote spiritual health. We're going to say a number of things about his preaching, and they're all useful and necessary and good. But just keep your eye on the prize here. And the prize is to say, why does Paul say all of this about his preaching? And the reason is because he would have us understand that he preached the way he did because it was for the promotion of our spiritual growth and grace. So let's think of a few things here, just in terms of the most bare-bones generality and overview of his preaching. We can say, number one, that it was bold. You see that in verse 20. I didn't shrink back. I didn't shrink back. It means to, to recoil, to draw back, to be evasive, to avoid something that is the implications and the consequences of some difficulty. We learn even more here that it was solemn preaching. You see that in verse 21. He was solemnly testifying. In other words, when he preached, you could feel the gravity and weight of the eternal matter of the subject. It wasn't just chatty. It wasn't just light. It wasn't just fun and anecdotal and inspirational. He was full of depth. He preached in such a way that was consistent with the substance of the truth that he proclaimed. Solemn. Indiscriminate as well. You can read that in the rest of verse 21. He was solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks. Notice here that Paul is indiscriminate in his model of preaching. He preaches to all men. Whether they Jews or Greek or barbarian or Scythian or bond or free or male or female, young or old, it doesn't matter. It was an indiscriminate kind of preaching. And it was an indiscriminate preaching because we're all equally in the same boat of need. And the one thing that can supply that need is this one gospel of Jesus Christ. We see, fourthly, it was available to all, as he says here in verse 21. He preached, uh, he preached publicly and from house to house, that is, from each little small church scattered across the city of Ephesus. He was there to bring the word, whether it was in public in the lecture hall of Tyrannus or whether it was a small living room where a handful of believers gathered together as a church in their particular portion or wing of the city. He was there. It was accessible. He preached in these ways. That's the general manner or tone, but I want us to now look at the specifics because here is really where the spiritual meat comes in. And we can see, first of all, the Apostle Paul summarizes the substance of his preaching from a particular perspective. He said, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. There's your key word. The first thing that highlights or characterizes the Apostle Paul's preaching in terms of substance is that it was profitable. It was profitable. There's uh, all kinds of uses of this word in connection with Paul's preaching. But I'm going to take you to one use of the term, which I think amplifies it in a way that we can get our hands on. And that's the use of the term in Hebrews chapter 12. 
in verse 10. He says, They disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but He disciplines us for our good, that's profit, that we may share in His holiness. Two things are being compared here. Fathers on earth and Father in heaven. Two actions are being compared. Discipline of earthly fathers and the discipline of the heavenly Father for His people. But the thing that isn't similar is the effect or the outcome. On the one hand, the preacher says that the discipline of the earthly father was to the best of their ability and how they knew how. And fathers, that's a great consolation to us because we often do things poorly. But the preacher said it's to the best of their know-how. But what he goes on to say in the comparison is that the discipline of the Heavenly Father far outweighs in terms of advantage the discipline of the earthly father. It's for our profit. And what is the profit? Sharing in His holiness. Sharing in His holiness. That is exactly what we are to think of here when we read the Apostle Paul says he, he uh, didn't shrink from declaring anything that was profitable. What the Apostle was saying, he didn't shrink back from anything that was profitable for our growth and sanctification. Think about all that we need in order to grow into maturity and, and, and greater spiritual depth and conviction of the truth and fighting sin and all the things that we need. The Apostle Paul said, you can take all of that set of things that is needed for this life of sanctification. He said, I preached it all. And that is the aim of preaching, to preach in such a way that the people of God are furnished with the tools to grow. But not just tools, but they're actually being sanctified by the very Word of God. He preached in a way that was for profit, for their personal, spiritual sanctification. But there's something else here. There's a twofold element to his preaching that we must take note of in verse 21 solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says if you peel back the layers of his sermonic material, you'd find at least two basic elements. There's going to be others we'll see in a moment. But from one perspective, again, he can say, if you peel it all back, there was always this message in his preaching, repentance towards God and faith towards the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's an essential message because this idea of repentance is at the foundation of the Christian life. This radical 180 degree reorientation. That's what the word means. Meta naeo. Radical change of mind. And he said this was a characteristic of his preaching, that he preached this constant need, first of all, the definitive need to change in our relationship towards God. But then there was this ongoing need in the Christian life of, of daily and regular and perpetual repentance. You see, this is what I always need to hear. I always need to hear that I need to keep changing in my ideas about God. I need them to be shaped by the Word. But then there was something else. This call to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The great song that Paul couldn't stop singing was the mercy of Christ. The great thing that the apostles seemed to be absorbed by and to be consumed with was this great message of grace in Jesus Christ. We love to hear Paul speak about Jesus, don't we? One of the great messages of the apostle Paul about Jesus Christ is that it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I have been crucified with Christ, he says. Again and again, he speaks of the, of the cross of Jesus Christ, about all of our sins being nailed to the cross. He talks about how uh, the, the, the blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross brings peace. He speaks of the cross constantly. The source and the root of the forgiveness of sins. You see, his, his preaching was riddled with this message. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
But there was one last message that characterized his preaching, and it's just important for us to lay hold of it too. And we see that in verse 27. I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Now, many of you probably have translations where it is uh, translated counsel, and I hope you do, because that is the better term. But, but, but think of this notion of, of preaching the entire counsel of God. We, we can all concede, I suppose, at the outset here, that it's a vast concept, and it's a rich idea. Preaching the whole counsel of God. So let's peel away or pick away at it uh, step by step to see if we can get our hands on it. And, and the first thing that I think we, we could say about this for illuminative purposes is to understand what a counsel is. A council is a deliberate plan. A council is a, is a set of, of events and plans and everything perfectly coordinated and all of it flowing out of a unified mind and thought. And so from one perspective, he represents this whole doctrinal, theological, practical message which he proclaims as something of this coherent set of ideas that flow from the mind of God based upon deliberation. We learned something else about this word here by repetition. I want you to uh, take note of the verb here in verse 27. I did not shrink. Put your little uh, index finger there and then uh, take your other index finger and look up at verse 20 and see what? I did not shrink. The same verb used in both texts, and that would indicate to us that they are mutually related. They help us understand uh, what we should know. And so we've already seen here, he did not shrink to preach, but what was profitable. So one thing that we could say in the whole class of things uh, that is included with the whole counsel of God is everything that we need for sanctification and growth in grace. But there's something else we could also say here to unpack the notion here. He uses the verb declaring, preaching. Well, Paul has talked to you about preaching from multiple angles in our text. He's described his preaching as being profitable things, repentance and faith, gospel of grace, the kingdom of God. So all of those ideas would also be within the set of things we call the whole council. Now, the point in all this is to try to help us come to terms with just what a wide understanding of preaching is being set forth here. The Westminster Confession of Faith um, puts it like this. It says, the whole counsel of God, the, the very verbiage here of our text, is this, all things necessary for God's glory, man's salvation and faith and life is expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence deduced therefrom. So here you have the notion of the whole counsel of God. The whole counsel of God is everything that pertains to God's glory and everything that pertains to my salvation and to my life as it's set down in the Word. Imagine this is the substance of his preaching. He's recounting the way he preached and the things he spoke about. And he says, I did nothing less than preach from A to theological biblical Z. All that was needed is what I proclaimed. Reminds us of what the apostle said the purpose of inspired scripture is it's for teaching, for reproof, for correction. For training in righteousness, that the man of God would be thoroughly equipped unto every good work. In other words, what Paul is saying here by this phrase is the substance of his message included everything that was essential for the Christian life. Everything that was needed, as I said at the outset of this point, to promote spiritual health. You see, as the Apostle Paul describes his preaching under these various terms, and then particularly here, the whole counsel of God, one of the things that you discern is the Apostle is teaching us what we need for our spiritual health. 
It's not just a diet of law. It's not just a diet of only gospel. It's not just a diet of just doctrine. It's not just a set of stories. It's the whole counsel of God is what is needed. That's what preaching is to consist of, and that's the substance of preaching that we need. Because you see, a truncated version of preaching will lead to a truncated Christian life. We need the whole counsel. We need to be fed by the whole word. And in saying it all that way, for the purpose that I did is so that we would understand what kind of preaching promotes spiritual health, it leads us quite naturally into our last point, which is really a point of conclusion about how to hear. You see, Paul told us what he did, but then uh, he does something here that's quite fascinating that I want to look at by way of application and conclusion, which tells us that he sets it forth for all of them so that you would understand what preaching is so that they will discern uh, what they need for their spiritual health so that they will be attentive hearers. I take all that from the connection of ideas. I want you to look at verses 26 and 27. Therefore I testify to you this day, I'm innocent of the blood of all men. For... See it for yourself. The statement here about the substance of His preaching and this great depth of the whole counsel of God is designed to offer an explanation. It wasn't just put there so that we would understand the breadth of the kind of preaching we need. It was. But but foremostly here, or firstly, it functions as an explanation for. Well, what does it explain? Well, you have to look back to verse 26 to see what it explains. I testify to you this day, I'm innocent of the blood of all men. Paul, why are you innocent of the blood of all men? The explanation is because I've told them everything that they need to know. But imagine the very conception here. The Apostle Paul is speaking about not just his part in the preaching of the Word, he's talking about your part. He says, I preach the way I have so that I would be free from the blood of men being on me, and on them then is the responsibility. Where does he get that phrase, by the way? The blood of all men? Paul, did you have to sound so harsh? Well, he got it from Ezekiel 33. He got it from the language of the watchman on the wall. He got it from the language of the job of that watchman, which was to watch vigilantly on the wall as far as he could see away on the horizon. And the moment he saw the clouds of dust rising up into the air from the approaching enemies, the duty of the watchman on the wall was to sound the trumpet so that everyone within earshot of that trumpet would make a beeline for the fortress and the refuge of the city walls. You see, it was a warning sound for the safety of those who hear. You see, the Word of God goes on to tell us that all those who refused to hear the watchman were responsible for their own demise. Paul takes that massive and weighty concept and he lays it before the church. And he speaks now of our own obligation and duty to hear. Our own obligation and duty to hear is precisely this, that it's so important. The stakes are nothing less than the blood. He's speaking here of spiritual implications and consequences. He said, I... I don't want to be responsible for somebody making shipwreck of of their Christian life. I don't want to leave anything out what was essential for them for their spiritual well-being. But once I set it forth, it's now upon them to hear. The watchman on the wall can't force anybody to hear or to respond. 
just as the pastor cannot. It speaks then of a solemn obligation to be careful how we hear this word when the whole counsel of God has been set forth. The failure to do so brings tremendously grievous spiritual consequences. I have to say, after preaching the word for over 20 years, I know there's a lot of people who don't listen. I know there's a lot of people who bothered to show up, but never bothered to come to hear. There's a lot of people who sat into the Word. There's a lot of people who made the effort to come. But there's a lot of people who don't make any effort to hear. And for them, quite sadly, the consequences will be devastating. The preacher isn't fooled and God isn't fooled. But some make show of trying to fool others and maybe even themselves by not listening. But what the Apostle Paul does is he places the duty of hearing the word with faith under such such tremendous gravity here as he speaks in terms of its dreadful spiritual consequences. He won't be innocent of the blood, but they'll be responsible for what they did with it. And so this morning, people of God, as we conclude our exposition, examination of Paul's model of ministry, both in terms of general service and preaching, so as to uh, promote spiritual health, we walk away thinking about the significance and the great importance and the great solemn obligation of hearing, so it's for our profit. Our catechism does such a masterful job summarizing how it is we ought to hear so that we will hear to our prophet. It says we are to hear with diligence. We are to hear with preparation. We are to hear with prayer. We are to hear with faith. We are to hear with readiness of mind. We are to hear with an aim to put it into practice in our life. If we do all of those things, we can be sure that, that this will be a hearing for our spiritual health and a hearing which glorifies God. Father, we thank you for the apostles' model and example. It's one that we uh, are grateful to be student learners of. Thank you for what a concise yet clear summary. A life of service to Christ with humility and with tears and even through trials. Lord, there are those in our midst who are finding it difficult to serve because it isn't easy. May they look to that example this morning and find not only instruction, but the elements that are necessary for resolve. We thank you for the the masterful summary of his preaching, how it was a preaching of all things profitable. It was a preaching of faith and repentance. It was a preaching of nothing less than the whole counsel of God. Remind us this morning, Lord, that uh, we're privileged to hear that full setting forth from A to Z of what you have for us in Jesus Christ. So, God in heaven, help us to be a attentive hearers. There would be so much readiness of mind to receive and then to put into practice. Oh, we'll fail at so many things and so many times. Lord, help us to take enough bread for today that our soul would be fed and nourished with Jesus Christ and that we'd be built up in Him. So we ask you to hear us for His sake. Amen.